My name is Paul Finsale. I'm the Executive Vice President of the International Center for Transitional Justice in New York. Uh, I also direct the Transitional Justice Program at New York University School of Law. Um, what I want to talk about today is transitional justice. Um, and I think it's useful to start with a definition. Uh, transitional justice is the ways in which societies come to terms with the legacy of gross violations of human rights. Uh, and it's come to encompass um, a couple of different strategies. Firstly, uh, prosecutions, holding people criminally accountable for the crimes that they've committed. Secondly, truth-seeking, establishing the truth about the fate and whereabouts of victims and the identity of perpetrators. Thirdly, reparations, providing assistance, um, be it material, um, financial, uh, in the form of services, um, to people who have suffered gross violations uh, and, uh, of human rights. Um, thirdly, institutional reforms, efforts to reform and alter institutions that were responsible for the abuse. It's no use to prosecute people, uh, to establish the truth about what happened, to pay reparation and compensation to victims, but to leave the institutions that were responsible for that abuse fundamentally unchanged and intact. intact. Fifthly, reconciliation, uh, efforts to try and promote unity uh, uh, or heal wounds or reduce resentments and animosities in deeply divided societies. Um, also efforts to uh, memorialize um, uh, crimes that occurred, to establish museums and monuments and memorials so that society never forgets the terrible crimes that occurred and that these monuments serve as a constant reminder and a warning um, about the terrible consequences of these, of these abuse. And uh, I also believe that in seeking to achieve all of these goals, one has to do so from uh, a gender perspective. One has to take into account the particular needs and interests of women. Um, and one has to design strategies which are calibrated to the particular experiences of women. Now, it may be uh, worth pausing for a moment um, and asking why do we really care? Why deal with a, gross viola a legacy of gross violation of human rights? Why not look to the future? Wh why should we look back? Um, and I think that there are two broad reasons. The first is that I think it's a fallacy to believe that you can, in fact, avoid the past. Um, I think that it is a fallacy to suggest that uh, at times of transition when countries have moved from authoritarianism to democracy or from conflict to peace, that leaders in those societies have an actual choice whether to confront the past or not. I would suggest that the real choice is you develop a set of proactive policies to confront the past or you seek to avoid the past only to have the past at some later date confront you. The past will come back to haunt you. And when it does, if you've sought to avoid it and you haven't developed a set of proactive and constructive policies, it will confront you in far less predictable, far more destructive and far more dangerous terms. And so therefore, it's better to develop a set of policies that anticipate the difficulties that have arisen in consequence of massive atrocity and seek to address them in a systematic way because that produces the greatest guarantee that they won't occur again in the future. There's also another cluster of reasons. Um, I think uh, the first of which is that I think that we are morally obligated 
to deal with the needs and interests of victims. In the wake of genocide or war crimes or crimes against humanity, when hundreds if not thousands if not hundreds of thousands of people have suffered the most unimaginable suffering, um, there have been killings, there have been disappearances, there have been torture. I think it's, um, it's immoral not to provide those people with some form of official response, not to provide them with some form of remedy. Um, a, a civilized society doesn't just look forward in the wake of these terrible atrocities. It seeks to address the suffering and the hardship that people who have been on the receiving end of these atrocities have experienced. Um, the second reason is a, is a prevention-based argument. Um, I think that um, uh, recent studies have, have, have indicated that the majority of civil wars um, that have been concluded um, relapse into conflict within the first five years, 50% of which, 50% of civil wars that have been concluded relapse into conflict within the first five years. And one of the three or four most important reasons for that relapse is a sense of grievance amongst communities who feel as though their suffering, um, the hardship, the injustices that they've suffered during the preceding conflict have not been sufficiently taken into account in the terms of the settlement. And if you have that sense of grievance, of resentment, of animosity uh, brewing within communities, those communities may be prone to take up arms, they may be prone to private acts of vengeance, they may be particularly receptive to warlords, to demagogues, uh, to ultranationalists who would stoke up um, their quite legitimate grievances for very dangerous ends. Um, I also think that the, the prevention argument um, can be grounded in a general argument about, about the rule of law. I think it's very difficult to um, imagine re-establishing the rule of law in the wake of terrible conflict if those people who are responsible for terrible crimes escape the consequences of those crimes, if there's complete impunity, if nobody's held to account. I think it's very hard for ordinary citizens to believe that you are now going to create a society which is governed by rules, the breaking of which has consequence. If people responsible for the worst forms of conduct we can imagine uh, in the realm of human action escape the conduct of those, uh, escape consequences uh, of that conduct. Um, and I also think that there's an international law argument for why we ought to um, deal with the past. Uh, there is now a very broad body of binding international law um, which says that states have obligations to take specific steps in the face of mass atrocity. Uh, and without you know, rehearsing the full extent of that, I will say that in general many treaty bodies, um, uh, the, convention, uh, the convention, the torture committee established under the Convention Against Torture, um, duties arising under the Genocide Convention, um, the terms of the new International Convention on Enforced Disappearances, um, the European Convention on Human Rights, the Inter-American Convention on Human Rights, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Um, these treaties, either by their plain terms or by the views handed down by bodies which interpret state obligations under these treaties, have set out that states 
are under an affirmative obligation to prosecute people responsible for um, a, a certain category of international crimes, to establish the truth about what occurred, to offer reparation, and to take steps to ensure that these crimes don't occur again. So, uh, in summary, um, we deal with the past because we don't really have any choice and that to seek to ignore the past would be foolish. We deal with the past because we have a moral obligation to victims. We deal with the past because we think that this is the most effective way to prevent these atrocities from occurring again. And we deal with the past because we have a binding international law obligation to do so. Now a little bit about each of the elements. Um, the first element, prosecutions. Um, starting with the Nuremberg trials and, and arguably even before then, um, we have begun to see a trend of holding people accountable for um, serious violations of international law. And we can hold people accountable in a range of different ways. We can establish um, international courts, such as the International um, Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and its counterpart for, for Rwanda. Um, we can establish um, uh, multilateral treaty-based courts um, like the International Criminal Court. And these courts, which um, have, uh, are international courts, can prosecute people for uh, international crimes that fall within their jurisdiction. We can also establish hybrid tribunals. Hybrid tribunals are courts that comprise a blend of both international um, participants judges, investigators, prosecutors, and um, domestic or local counterparts. Um, and the theory there is that especially when these hybrid tribunals are located on the territory where the crime's committed, they blend together international expertise and international uh, impartiality and independence with local ownership and can result in transferring skills and capabilities to local actors who can then use those skills when the courts cease to operate. Um, but they also give the, the local community a sense that they are doing justice themselves, that they are not having justice imposed upon them by a foreign entity. There are also local courts. We've seen particularly important strides in Chile and in Argentina recently. Um, we are beginning to see some progress uh, in Peru where um, domestic courts are seeking to prosecute people for very serious crimes. And obviously this is, in some senses, the most desirable course of action because uh, the vast majority of criminal conduct is always dealt with in local courts. And uh, I believe very strongly in the, in the principle, the complementarity principle embodied in the Rome Statute which established the ICC, which stipulates that it is preferable always to prosecute people uh, closest to where the crimes occurred using uh, domestic institutions and that the international community should as a rule step in only when local actors are either unwilling or unable to pursue justice. Now, uh, if there is a sort of growing international experience in seeking to hold people accountable for the crimes that they've committed, I think we, we've begun to extract some tentative lessons. Um, the first is, um, that I do think that we want to structure justice efforts 
um, to the extent that the justice efforts involve the international community, involve organizations like the United Nations or regional bodies lending resources or expertise to justice efforts, we want to structure them in a way that they build local capacity and leave a legacy. You don't want, uh, ideally, justice efforts to be done in a way that are fully externalized from the local context and that when the international community's resources and political will um, uh, stop or turn away from a particular setting, um, there aren't the resources or the political will to continue pursuing justice and accountability for crimes on an ongoing basis. And I think that we have now um, an accumulated body of knowledge which sets out the most effective ways to structure international interventions in a way that leaves a legacy and builds capacity. I think a second broad uh, lesson is um, that communication and outreach really counts. Um, I think those of us who are, are lawyers um, need to remember that what goes on in a courtroom doesn't automatically translate into the lives of ordinary people and that even though um, having justice done is an independent good, it's much more important for that justice to be seen and to be experienced by the communities in which the crimes took place. And far too often, um, international courts have underinvested in efforts to communicate what they're doing, to explain their role, to convey the, act, the um, proceedings in, in, in the trials that are underway to the local population so that people understand that justice is being done, they understand the subject matter of the trials and they feel confident that uh, there has been some remedy, there has been some intervention in the wake of these, these terrible crimes. Moving on to truth-seeking. Um, we've seen in the last 30 years um, the establishment of over 30 truth commissions. Truth commissions are official bodies established either by presidential decree or by statute um, that are set up to discover the uh, fate and whereabouts of victims and to uncover the causes, nature and effect of gross violations of human rights. Um, and truth commissions have become very popular in part because of a recognition that trials in the best case scenario can only prosecute a small fraction of the total number of perpetrators. When there have been thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of perpetrators, you can only prosecute a very small, indeed a minuscule percentage of the total number of perpetrators. Um, even in the best circumstances where there's political will, where there's resources, where there's capacity and where there are no amnesties or other legal impediments, courts are by their very nature slow and deliberative and this is a good thing because we want to ensure that we deprive people of their liberty in only rare circumstances when we're absolutely um, certain that they're guilty of the crimes that they're accused of. And therefore truth commissions have become important at least in part to fill the gap left by trials. Uh, that if trials can only prosecute a small number of people, truth commissions can at least give victims a voice, can give them an opportunity to tell their stories, can let them feel that their suffering has been fully and properly acknowledged. 
Um, and trials, truth commissions can also establish the identity of perpetrators. If you can't prosecute everybody, at least you can shame people by identifying them as responsible for terrible crimes. And this may have its own consequences. It may um, effectively bar people from public office. It may prevent them from serving in the security forces. It may diminish their political and social power. So naming people, providing it's done fairly uh, in accordance with uh, fair procedures, can be a very important adjunct to criminal prosecutions. Truth commissions also paint a bigger picture. They tell a larger story about the history of the crimes that occurred, and they help place it in context. They help explain why the crimes occurred, what institutions and individuals and political parties and groups were responsible and what institutions, political parties and groups helped resist uh, and ameliorate um, the consequences of these crimes. And because they tell a bigger story and a greater history about the causes and consequences of gross violations of human rights, they can also be very important in terms of prevention. Truth commissions can make a series of recommendations and often this is a central part of their mandate to recommend a set of measures designed to ensure that the human rights violations don't occur again. So they, in, in contexts where there's been widespread torture, truth commissions can document that torture and then they can make a set of recommendations about um, insisting on uh, uh, proper habeas corpus protection for people in places of detention, uh, for inspection regimes, for access to lawyers and medical practitioners, um, for vetting mechanisms to remove people responsible from torture um, from the security services, um, for uh, a set of more stringent and carefully drafted rules regulating um, what is an, uh, what is an uh, acceptable and unacceptable rules of interrogation. And truth commissions have often um, really strong moral authority to make these recommendations because they don't make them out of the air or in a vacuum. They make these recommendations based on thousands of victims' testimonies and on a very detailed analysis of how it is that these violations could have occurred in the first place. Um, the third area is reparation. Um, reparations are, reparation programs have been uh, uh, implemented for um, uh, close to a century now in, in different contexts. They generally involve the payment of money or the delivery of some form of resources to people who've suffered um, gross violations of human rights. Um, it can take the form of pensions, um, uh, direct monetary payments, either lump sum or um, over a period of time to people who suffered, who were unable to work, or to the family members or dependents of people who have been killed. can also take the form of access to services, um, scholarships or bursaries to go to educational institutions, free access to medical services, free access to um, psychological services, to trauma counseling, to people who have been exposed to terrible violence. And reparation can also um, take, the for, take a symbolic form, um, the provision of gravestones for people who've disappeared, um, the issuance of death certificates to people who have disappeared um, as a way of bringing closure 
both psychologically but also legally in cases where the fate and whereabouts of victims have been unknown for a large period of time. Now obviously um, there are enormous challenges to deliver reparation in contexts where there have been hundreds of thousands or millions of victims. It's extraordinarily expensive to deliver uh, just and comprehensive reparation programs particularly so because the countries in which these crimes have occurred are typically ones who have shattered economies and don't have an enormous amount of resources. So there's always a challenge in formulating a reparation program that allows victims to feel as though their suffering has been acknowledged and their dignity has been restored uh, on the one hand, but also to do so in a way that is responsible and affordable. Um, and to that end, there are a whole range of creative options emerging of how you link reparation payments to broad development programs, being careful not to collapse uh, reparation into development programs because that's the easiest trick in the book just for governments to say that what they're doing in the course of, of, of their general obligation to provide their citizens with a decent life um, is the same as reparation. They should be regarded as distinct both legally and morally. But there are a whole bunch of ways in which you can carefully integrate reparation programs and development programs. For example, um, if a truth commission discovers that um, there have been very high levels of um, violence against women in particular regions, um, it can pass that information on to health ministries to allow them to take that information into account in their general planning of where to build hospitals and clinics, where to situate primary health care providers, and where to situate specialists who deal with a particular set of health-related problems. And if a Ministry of Health knows that a particular area or region has a high concentration of um, of women who've been subject to, to extreme levels of violence can reasonably predict that specialists who deal with the, the, the particular health consequences that women are likely to experience should be situated there and therefore you can blend together an analysis of the demography of gross violations of human rights with um, proactive development planning. The fourth area is, uh, is institutional reform and as I said both trials and truth commissions can help provide pointers as to which institutions were particularly responsible for abuse. And the, the, the obvious example is a hit squad. If you identify that a hit squad had been operating, you can disband that hit squad, you can prosecute its members, and that can make a very important contribution both to reducing future human rights violations, but also to restoring trust and confidence in the security forces. You can also do a broader program of vetting. You can take the data that you gather in trials or the data gathered by truth commissions and use that to screen the background and conduct of members of the security forces, the police, the military, intelligence services to see whether people responsible for gross violations of human rights, either directly or having ordered those violations, are, in, uh, are, are employed in these institutions and then providing you follow a fair set of procedures those people can be removed from those institutions and that in itself will be a very important measure of institutional reform. 
You can also look at a range of other institutions, the media for example. Uh, we don't need to rehearse the ways in which Radio Milkolin in Rwanda for example uh, played a crucial role in um, spewing the hate and the propaganda that fueled and enabled the genocide in that country. Um, and in too many uh, undemocratic and authoritarian societies, the media is a source of lies and disinformation. The media perpetuates dangerous stereotypes or just um, broadcasts pure hate speech and can be a very important enabler of gross violations of human rights. And if this is something that is diagnosed through trials and truth commissions, then you can make a set of very sensible recommendations about how you establish um, codes of ethics for journalists, how you ensure that public broadcasters are um, uh, governed by independent boards, um, uh, that uh, a commitment to democracy and human rights is built into the charter and the constitution of public broadcasters. You can take a set of steps which don't infringe in the, on the in, uh, importance of the independence of the media, which don't infringe on the importance of free speech, but which also create amongst the media broadcasters, journalists, uh, newspapers, a sense of their own professional obligations. And I think there's just no doubt that an independent media can be a very important bulwark against uh, the emergence of gross violations of human rights. Um, school curriculum are also a very important area. Um, school curricula can be used for propaganda purposes, to indoctrinate people, to divide them, uh, to weaken a commitment to human rights and to play up a sense of blind nationalism. Um, and conversely, you can take the findings of truth commissions and important trials and incorporate them into school curriculums. You can uh, teach uh, ethics and uh, civic responsibility uh, and human rights as part of your curriculum, even at a young age, so that people begin to understand and value the importance of human rights. Um, and that again serves to inoculate citizens against nationalist politicians who might otherwise um, seek to mobilize them uh, in furtherance of, of, of dangerous causes. Reconciliation is of course very important, especially where conflicts have assumed an identity di dimension. And by that I mean where people have, where the form of the conflict has um, taken place along the fault lines of race or religion or ethnicity um, or language. And um, I think it's important to start by saying what reconciliation isn't. Uh, reconciliation isn't um, letting bygones be bygones, sweeping the past under the carpet, um, adopting an amnesiac approach to dealing with the past. Reconciliation isn't impunity for, for past crimes. Um, I believe very strongly that reconciliation, true reconciliation, can only occur on the basis of a deep engagement with the conflicts of the past um, and it is facilitated by some measures of accountability, by establishing the truth, by offering reparation to victims and by changing and reforming abusive institutions. Um, but there are a range of other uh, ways in which you can seek to restore ties and confidence um, in deeply di divided society. 
Um, education is extraordinarily important, especially where education has been de facto segregated and divided. Um, developing sensitive and intelligent ways to bring young people together, to bring children together at an early age where people from different ethnic groups or religions or linguistic groups are in fact encountering each other at, long, at an early age, are breaking down stereotypes, are learning to live, are, are learning, um, living to learn that um, uh, diversity is a value, that it's not something to be feared, that it shouldn't be a basis of resentment or anger. Um, uh, reconciliation can also be facilitated by confidence building amongst leaders, finding ways in which to bring leaders from warring factions together, getting them to understand each other's discourses, perspectives, traditions, historical views, um, beginning to see things from other people's perspectives. Uh, reconciliation can also be facilitated through the media, through a series of, of targeted programs which seek to emphasize points of commonality rather than difference. Um, and reconciliation can also be facilitated by community exchanges, by a range of targeted programs which seek to bring people who might otherwise not encounter each other and might, might not uh, otherwise not understand each other into proximity with, with each other so that they can begin to learn from each other uh, and trust each other. Museums and monuments um, are also, I would argue, very, very important. Um, the way that we um, populate our memory scape, the way that we um, remember crimes of the past and, the, and, and construct our own history is very important. We can remember conflicts of the past in a way that is divisive, that stirs up old animosities and resentments, that cause young people to remember events or battles or conflicts from centuries ago in a way that are used to divide communities against each other and mobilize people against each other. Or we can create places of remembrance, places of mourning, places of public memory that honor the dead, that recognize suffering, but that also seek to bridge divides, that teach us lessons, that animate important values. Uh, that are places that we can bring school children and citizens so that they can learn a lesson of never again as opposed to again and again. Um, and again, there is a, a whole um, experience, a technology, a best practice about how you establish these museums, monuments and memorials in a way that's likely to overcome the divisions of the past as opposed to perpetuate them. I think I will conclude by making two broad um, framing points. The one thing is that um, the different institutions, that um, the different um, uh, components of transitional justice, prosecutions, truth-seeking, institutional reform, reconciliation, um, um, monuments, memorials, museums, um, shouldn't be thought of as um, um, a la carte uh, items on a menu that you pursue a little bit of justice here or a little bit of truth seeking there. They should be regarded as part of a comprehensive and holistic package. 
um, that you achieve the most effective way of dealing with the past if you try and achieve as many of these strategies as possible. And if you do so, um, then the relationship between those various institutions becomes very important. You can structure the relationship between trials and truth commissions or between reparation programs and truth commissions or reparation programs um, and, civil, and civil trials in a way that either enhances each, each other, that complement each other, that maximize each other or that undermine and, and, and trip each other up. Um, and so it's very important when developing these holistic responses to think, for example, about how undertaking a truth commission might facilitate subsequent criminal prosecutions, um, how gathering the evidence can help advance accountability rather than serve as a, a roadblock on the path to accountability, how gathering data from victims of truth commissions can be very important to designing carefully calibrated reparation programs, how efforts to reform the judiciary um, the prosecutorial service, the police service can complement and strengthen efforts to promote criminal accountability and hold criminal trials. So these mechanisms should be thought of as part of a holistic package, should be thought of as, uh, as, a, as a set of packages that reinforce each other and ideally if you conceive of them that way they do in fact aggregate up the, um, uh, the, the sum of the parts uh, the whole becomes greater than the sum of the parts um, and, and that is in fact um, very, very important. Um, and the sequencing is also very important in that sense. It's not necessary to achieve everything all at once. Um, and this is particularly so because dealing with, with mass atrocity is very, very difficult um, and occurs in often very precarious and difficult circumstances. Um, perpetrators may retain significant power at moments of transition. They may not be fully defeated um, and they may have military or economic or political power and therefore it may not be either possible or desirable to embark on a robust set of trials right away. It may, may not be possible to um, muster both the financial resources and the political will to pay generous reparation. But if you take small and incremental steps um, and if you view the process of dealing with the past as a decades-long endeavor as opposed to a series of quick fixes, then you can in fact sequence a set of measures and you can adopt a set of measures that are possible under the circumstances and then use those measures as a building block for subsequent efforts. Um, uh, and then this brings me to my final conclusion and, and that is that I think there has um, emerged a very important debate um, when dealing with the past about the relationship between efforts to promote accountability and justice for past crimes and efforts to bring a conflict to an end, to silence the guns um, uh, and, to, and to seek to consolidate and establish democracy. Now, as you know, the United Nations has recently in the Secretary General's report on transitional justice and the rule of law in conflict and post-conflict societies has adopted what I regard as a very important principle that is that the United Nations will not endorse amnesties for genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity and other gross violations of human rights.
Um, and, and that sends, I think, a very important signal that an organization with the prestige and importance of the United Nations, uh, an institution that represents um, uh, the overwhelming majority of nations in the world, um, will not countenance um, impunity and amnesty for these terrible crimes. And I think um, <clears throat> in some quarters that has stirred up some anxiety that what this does is make mediators' efforts more, more difficult. It takes away a very important um, incentive that you can give to perpetrators who still retain important power that you can say to them that if they lay down their arms they will escape the consequences of their crimes. Um, and that, that therefore complicates peace efforts. Um, and I think it's true to say that in the most extreme circumstances in which perpetrators, um, the only thing that is um, uh, preventing perpetrators from consummating a peace deal is the fear of accountability, then uh, uh, a, a stringent rule that there can be no amnesties, that amnesties are incre increasingly subject to um, overturning and review um, uh, as a result of international advances in international law. Um, this can complicate peace efforts, but I would argue that in general uh, and on balance this is a very important development. Um, firstly, because the dynamics around peace negotiations are very complex, are multivariant, um, that there are many different um, aspects, both pressures and incentives that exist um, that come to play in a complex set of ways um, when peace is being negotiated. And indeed it is very, very seldom that uh, the fear of accountability um, is the uh, the, the, the straw that breaks the camel's back, as it were, is the final impediment, is the but for, for the consummation of peace. But it also, uh, we also have a set of, um, of strategies in our toolbox if we're trying to achieve both justice and peace. Uh, prosecutions can be delayed and deferred. Um, you can think of a whole set of, uh, you can think of justice in holistic terms. You can think about a combination of some, um, some form of criminal accountability, um, some form of plea bargaining and reduced sentencing, uh, combined with a truth commission, combined with a reparation program, combined with some efforts to reform abusive institutions. And so it doesn't have to be as binary as full criminal accounting, accountability for, um, for all of these crimes versus peace. There can be a set of ways in which you can develop justice packages that may be politically acceptable and which may uh, not serve as an impediment to prosecutions. But finally, I think you could also argue that, um, that the justice genie is out of the bottle, that the International Criminal Court has been established, more than 105 countries have ratified the court, that there is an interlocking um, series of international law obligations which cover over 90% of the countries in the world, which basically are holding that amnesties for certain crimes are presumptively void, are, are not enforceable. 
uh, and that you can't put that justice genie back into the bottle. Um, and that the history of the world has been up to now too much impunity and too little accountability. And we are now in a world in which we have a very powerful instrument, which is international law, which erodes the ability of those responsible for terrible crimes to award themselves amnesties or to blackmail others into giving them amnesties. Um, and that this is something that can be used creatively and strategically by international organizations and by civil society groups to seek to maximize justice in the long term, in the medium term in some instances, in the wake of mass atrocity. And I believe that that is the most effective way to protect human rights in the long term, to secure sustainable democracy and to create conditions of peace. So thank you very much for listening.